Welcome to episode 20, which is a double bill drive-in special with my previous episode in 19 uh, with Tony Ash, my interview with uh, filmmaker Tony Ash and his trick-or-treat picture show. And I thought um, episode 20 would be celebrated with, since it's falling right around Halloween and looking at the much maligned and somewhat rehabilitated Halloween 3. Look, it's not a film review. I'm looking at the process of how Halloween 3 was made. Uh, I think a lot of people by now know the plot. And, uh, you know, this film is debated back and forth on YouTube and, and about 20,000 movie sites. So I'm, I'm proposing that the film deserves a second look. And also for the fact that I think Halloween 3, next to the original Halloween, which it has nothing to do with, and we'll get into that, and if you don't know that by now, you really should. And that is um, Halloween 3 is really Halloweeny. Like it really captures the creepy, odd spirit of Halloween. It has a very Halloween feel to it. And those of you who are fans of the film, I think, are probably nodding right now, going absolutely right on. And um, that's why I wanted to take some time on this, is to go through it. So let's backtrack a little bit get a little of the uh, playing field leveled here. So if you aren't familiar with Halloween 3, 1982's Halloween 3, not the upcoming Halloween Kills, um, let's get into that and uh, let's give a little background. 1982's Halloween 3, you, you mostly get the reaction and that is, oh, you mean that Halloween movie. It's the one without Michael Myers, right? It, it has nothing to do with the other movies. This one sucks, right? Well, you might be right on two accounts. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, does not have anything to do with Michael Myers. It's not connected in any way to the Jamie Lee Curtis storyline started with the 1978 Carpenter classic. And most importantly, it was never meant to with most of the hostility for the film attributed to the concept of, of cinema, which we're going to get into. And look, I can go back. Um, when I first met the director of the film and the screenwriter, uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, who has since become not only my friend, but my mentor and kind of a, what I always call my, my horror film, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, Tommy came to my home to work on another project with me. And my brother showed up. Now, my brother is known for being very blunt and, and very straightforward. And I remember him walking up to Tommy Lee Wallace and he shook his hand and he goes, Tommy Lee Wallace, what the fuck happened with Halloween 3? And I could have died. And instead, Tommy smiled because I'm sure he's been asked this many times and, and been in situations like this. And he went on to tell the entire backstory of Halloween 3. So part of what Tommy said is incorporated into this podcast and you can also find it on my cinema blog. So let's use uh, Tommy's direct words in a quote. And Tommy said, when the Halloween 2 script came in, I thought it was the anti-Halloween. All the things that we did with Halloween so well had been tossed out the window. I understood that in the intervening time between the first movie and what was going to be the second movie, that times had changed. Audiences had changed. And maybe the dynamics of the movie and the amount of violence might be impacted by all of that. I felt that John, John Carpenter, was betraying his own legacy. I held my breath and said no. A director really needs to believe deeply in the material. 
And that's from Tommy Lee Wallace. Now, Tommy has gone on to say to me that, you know, at times he wondered if he shot himself in the foot by passing up Halloween 2, 1981's Halloween 2. And, and the reason for saying that is, is because, look, the film was going to be an instant box office hit. You, you could have made it with Michael Myers reading the phone book for 90 minutes and it would have made money. And Tommy knew that. But he said, when I read the script, my heart sank. And we'll get into Halloween 2 in a little bit because for me, I feel that 1981's Halloween 2 is a major, major retread and cynical ripoff of the original film. Now, upon being offered Halloween 3, uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill circled back to Tommy Lee Wallace and offered him you know, this Halloween 3 film. Uh, they told him that neither of them had wanted to do a sequel. That's what they told Tommy. And John had hated Halloween 2. Halloween 3 is not a masterpiece, but it's not cinema. Michael Myers, also known as The Shape, returned to the franchise in 1988, if you remember, and that was six years after the failure of Halloween 3 in what I feel was a total retread, Halloween 4. And, and the only thing good about Halloween 4 that I felt was Danielle Harris. Now, Mustafa Akkad, the executive producer of the original Halloween series, said this. He said, I just went back to the basics of Halloween with Halloween 4, and it was the most successful. They knew. Don't fuck with formula. So they totally left out Halloween 3 because, again, it shouldn't be called Halloween 3. And they simply brought Michael Myers back. And I alluded to this in a previous podcast on my open letter to New Line Cinema in which the Friday the 13th franchise, which ripped off Halloween, uh, understood its mistake by getting rid of Jason Voorhees in the uh, ill-fated Friday the 13th Part 5. They went back to basics. They brought their their villain, their monster back. And of course, they were rewarded at the box office. And speaking of which, the, the only thing that kills the monster is bad box office. I mean, how many times has Freddy died? How many times has Jason died? Pinhead, we can go on forever. Halloween 2, however, let's go back to 1981's Halloween 2, for me, is a shining example of cinema. It's a sequel for sequel's sake. And it duped its fan base into thinking it was getting something good for their devotion to the first film. John Carpenter has disavowed Halloween 2. And look, you know what they did in the uh, new 2018 Michael Myers Halloween film. And that is they they totally dropped the entire plot line of Halloween 2. In fact, the entire movie is just forgotten. And there's a reason for that. Deborah Hill also disavowed Halloween 2. But both Carpenter and Hill knew there would be a sequel, regardless of their feelings. When Wallace vocalized creative concerns while considering directing Halloween 2, he was told by John Carpenter, in essence, to back off. Uh, Tommy would be a a hireling, for the back of a better word, a gun for hire, as, as the sequel would require really no creativity, and it was just a name brand product. Fans were going to return regardless of who was directing it. The film would direct itself, and film critic James Bernardo Dinelli uh, corroborates Wallace and, and Carpenter while clearly illustrating cinema in a, this is a, a piece from his scathing and dead-on review for 1981's Halloween 2, and James said this. He said, the main problem is the film's underlying motivation. Halloween, the original Halloween, was a labor of love made by people committed to creating the most suspenseful and compelling motion picture that they could. Halloween 2 was impelled by the desire to make money. 
It was a postscript and not a very good one. Slapped together because a box office success was guaranteed. Son of a bitch if that isn't the definition of cinema right there. The sequels after Halloween 3, in my opinion, I will argue are worse than Halloween 2 and worse than Halloween 3 because of dedicated fans and blind allegiance to the franchise. They are dedicated without any critical thinking and just blind emotional fan devotion. It's Michael. He's back. That's it. I love it. And oh, you're going to trot out Jamie Lee Curtis for Halloween H2O. Oh, well, I love it. I love it. I love it. Not even thinking that, is this really any good? The sequels never came to the level of the original 1978 film, even the poorly written and executed H2O. That film gets a free pass because they just simply lure Jamie Lee Curtis back. They are of varying quality and represent cinema for squeezing every last possible dime from the storyline while cynically manipulating the audience into believing it's getting something better than it actually is. Roger Ebert said this about Halloween 2, and and it's great what, what he comes up with here. He said, The plot of Halloween 2 absolutely depends, of course, on our old friend, the idiot plot, which requires that everyone in the movie behave at all times like an idiot. That's necessary, because if anyone were to use common sense... The problem would be solved and the movie would be over. Halloween 2 was a financial success, but its two main characters perished in that fiery conclusion, if you remember, and consequently they concluded that storyline and the franchise. That's it. It was over. John Carpenter and producer Deborah Hill were approached for a third installment and they reluctantly agreed only if this were a whole new storyline that did not include Michael. Halloween 2 was a financial success, but if you guys remember, the two main characters, Loomis and Myers, well, they perished at the end in the hospital when when Loomis blew them the fuck up, and we watched Michael burn. He died. John Carpenter and producer Deborah Hill were still approached for a third installment, and they reluctantly agreed, only if this time around, it was a whole new storyline that did not include Michael, and you know what? Good for them. That's exactly what they should have done. So once again, they turned to Tommy Lee Wallace for an offer to direct, and and this time the idea of a whole new type of film caught Tommy's interest. And he said this, he said, What we had worked out was the idea that Halloween was going to become a yearly franchise, a new launch, so there was just endless possibility Year in and year out, there would be a new theme, a new film, something totally unconnected. Now, Wallace wanted something new, as as you can hear in in his words, and believing fans did as well. And the road to Halloween 3 was paved with the best of intentions. And Tommy said this in an interview. He said, the audience pays their money. They go in. Most people don't read movie posters in any detail. All they're thinking about is, yeah, Halloween. And then it's like, well, wait, where's Jamie Lee? Where's the knife? Where's the shape, which most of you fans know that is what Michael Myers was officially called. So Tommy has a point. You produce this thing, you you get it out there, but nobody's reading the poster. And Tommy's going to describe that that poster in which he said, you know, they, they slapped all new on the poster. Well, if you remember, they did that with Jaws 3D as well, too. And what the fuck does that mean? All new. It, it sounds like a, a toothpaste commercial is, is really what it does. 
And so you have all new on the poster, but people aren't thinking, well, all new means without Jamie Lee. It means without Donald Pleasance. It means without Michael Myers. All new is just really visual noise. It means nothing. And look, I went to see Halloween 3 with a girlfriend in 1982. And we went into our local theater and sat down and the place was packed. Everybody expecting a continuation of of Halloween 2. And about 15, 20 minutes in, you could hear people grumbling in the in the theater behind us and around us going, well, what the hell is this? What's going on? What's going on? That was the number one thing. Not even it sucks. They were confused. What's going on? There is no Jamie Lee. We're not seeing Dr. Loomis. We're, we're not seeing any of Haddonfield. What, there's some doctor played by Tom Atkins and masks and somebody getting their eyes ripped out in a hospital and then someone burdens themselves up. What the fuck is going on here? And one by one, I watched people leaving the movie theater and they were getting up, walking out. Some people going, this is bullshit. And I remember the door opening and a couple people had pinned the manager outside and they were complaining, asking for their money back. By the time the movie was over, I think out of a packed house, it might've been a 200 seat house. There might've been 50 people left. That's how many people walked out. However, I, for one, love the movie. I sat there going, this was a lot of fun. It was goofy. It was weird. It was creepy. A great villain, which I'm going to get into. And, and I thought, okay, yeah, it wasn't really Halloween, the continuation, but I was actually happy about that. So I got broadsided by this whole thing, thinking I was going into another installment of Halloween and totally got a surprise. So for me, it wasn't a trick. It was a treat. So getting back to the topic, the plan was to do a whole new type of Halloween movie that would not include any of the elements from the first two films. And John Carpenter was a fan of British writer uh, Nigel Neal, and he was most famous, most of you probably know, uh, for the Professor Quartermass series. And the script by Wallace's account was a heavy, dark story with little hope, focusing on a toy maker's use of microchip technology to spread his evil. That's pretty fucking cool. And it was different. God forbid we do anything different. So Neil's script was kind of out of the box, a whole new kind of way of thinking about Halloween. And and Wallace estimates about 60% of Neil's story made it to the final film. And and the final 40% was divided equally between an uncredited carpenter and and Tommy himself. And, And Nigel Neal said this about how his script was handled in the film. He said, it wasn't horror for horror's sake. My story had to do with deception. I hadn't seen the first two films, but I knew enough about them to be put off by the idea unless it was a brand new story. The theme was to be microchip witchcraft. In the old days, in order for a witch to put a curse on you, she had to make personal contact. With the advent of the microchip, a spell could be transferred through the Halloween gifts. Damn if that isn't great. That sounds really cool. And I love the idea of that microchip made from the um, Stonehenge stone uh, inserted into the the label on the back of the mask. This was great. And Neil was, he was upset over producer Dino De Laurentiis' insistence on blood and gore and to keep the focus on violence from the first two films. That's what De Laurentiis wanted. They didn't want to stray far from that formula. And Neil said this, he said, I I, I said to them, don't you want some kind of suspense at the beginning? Oh, no, they said. You must start in tearing heads off. 
We've got to keep faith with the kids. What they actually meant was to extract all the money out of the campus kids within the space of two weeks. And Neil is describing what I described, I believe, in my third episode of cinema, the classic hit and run. Just make your money in the first two weeks to 10 days of the film's release and fuck everybody else. Folks, that is cinema. Now, I'm not saying Halloween 3, the film, is cinema, but the entire production of that marketing program is complete 100% bona fide cinema. So Neil was forced to hand over a script to John Carpenter for a rewrite before it ended up with Tommy Lee Wallace. And Neil subsequently removed his name from, from screen credit. He, he didn't want anything uh, credited to him, much like Richard Matheson tried to do with Jaws 3D. And there were no hard feelings because he really believed Wallace was also in a tough spot and forced to bend to Dino De Laurentiis and the studio's demands. And Neil said this about Tommy. He said there was nothing he could do. He was driven to it. He's a very intelligent man with a strong feeling for character. So Neil took his paycheck, handed over his script, and understood that shit's going to get changed, and he walked away with no hard feelings. So in case if I haven't emphasized enough, I mean, cinema is clearly at work in the premeditated plan for this hit-and-run release on this movie. In fear of losing a quick return on their investment, the title Halloween 3 was deliberately used knowing it would make audiences believe it would be a direct sequel to the previous two installments. But here's the catch, folks. They fucking knew it wasn't. So they're duping you. So that's going to piss off a lot of dedicated Halloween fans. And with good reason, I can understand. Tommy Lee Wallace found Universal Studios' efforts underwhelming in trying to get audiences ready for the new concept. And, and here it is. This is where he talks about that, that poster work. And he said, A lot of things could have happened to set the table for this sort of thing, conditioning the audience for a new type of film. All that was done by Universal to prepare the audience was this tiny little banner in the corner of the poster. And all it said was, all new, like a toothpaste ad. All new. Well, what does that mean? I couldn't agree with Tommy Moore. What the fuck does that mean? And again, look at the Jaws 3D posters for the early teaser posters of it. All new. All new. Again, what does that mean? So you roll the dice, but you hedge your bets. And Universal played the odds, knowing a bulk of the audience would return simply because of the title Halloween 3. Ten years before the internet would change the way media would reach us, it would take a good two weeks for this kind of damaging word of mouth to get around. And that is, the film has nothing to do with Michael Myers. And by that time, most of its business would be done and hopefully the product would return a profit, even if it was a small one. And the thing is, Halloween 3 made a profit. It did not bomb. People think it bombed simply because they didn't like it. But the hit and run worked. Halloween 3 recouped its money and edged out a small profit. So there you go. The cinematic, and I'm using cinema, my cinema, cinematic marketing campaign worked 100% in the form of a hit and run. Universal pulled a bait and switch. And regardless of whose decision to put Halloween 3 over the title Season of the Witch, the studio betrayed its own filmmakers and everybody affiliated with this movie. Now, FilmEdge.net's assessment firmly backs up the cinema that spoiled a truly interesting and fun horror film 
that could never be judged on its own merits. And they said this, they said, this cynical switcheroo on behalf of the film's creators and marketers sank Halloween 3's reputation and box office fortunes alone. Moviegoers in general rejected the next entry in the supposed anthology of films as unexpected and unwanted, regardless of what merits Halloween 3 had or lacked on its own. And that's my point. This is why I'm doing a podcast on this film, because Halloween 3 needs to be judged on its own merits. And that means by removing the title Halloween 3. It just needs to be looked at as Season of the Witch. And when you look at it as Season of the Witch, you really do have an entirely different film. Cinema, my cinema, has been defined in the conception of Halloween 3. But is the resulting film any good? The answer is a strong yes. Halloween 3 is a good film. And it deserves to be looked at simply as Season of the Witch. And removed from the context of the Halloween franchise completely. So, so let's do that. Here's what Film Edge also had to say. The producers, director, and audience seem to agree. If Halloween 3 had been eliminated from its title, Season of the Witch would have avoided the instant and fatal backlash it suffered upon release. That's from FilmEdge.net. Moving forward, what really works about Halloween 3? So let's look at this. Again, cinema is not about movie reviews. However, we need to look at certain things here because of the way that this film was destroyed by a very cynical marketing plan. So what works about Halloween 3? Well, the first thing is Dean Cundy. Dean returned for this third installment after lensing Halloween 1 and 2. And he returned to give the film a similar look to the first two films. And it's a picture that defies its $2.5 million budget. Halloween 3 is a widescreen, clean, and atmospheric picture that betrays that low budget and elevates this film far above similar horror films of its time. It is simply beautiful to look at. Now, let's move on. Dan O'Hurley. My God, was this guy a great villain. And I've said before, he would have made a great James Bond villain as well. Dan's portrayal of Connell Cochran has just the right amount of gallows humor, corporate authority, and pathos to project a truly evil man and not to be messed with. His scene with Tom Atkins giving background to his motives is just delicious. Watch that scene. That scene is perfect for the Halloween season when he explains his nefarious plot to Tom Atkins. And Roger Ebert at one point, I remember in one of his reviews about this film, said something along the line of um, that it was like a James Bond villain uh, monologue kind of thing, uh, explaining the plot. But that's okay. And here's the other thing. Roger Ebert made a mistake in this. If you go back and find his original Halloween 3 review, he didn't review this film. Now, I know several of the filmmakers of Halloween 3 who said that Roger Ebert probably sat and watched the film using a visual scan and fast forward and put together his review just from visual evidence. Ebert says that Michael Myers is a robot in Halloween 3. So that tells you he probably didn't even give the time to watch the film properly. And that's that's really a a quirk there, out of line and out of character for somebody like Roger Ebert, who I think was one of the greatest film reviewers and uh, pop culture critics of all time. 
And so he, he kind of cheated on that. And I don't know if that review is still up, but I have a book of Robert, Roger Ebert's um, collection of, of reviews. And I read that with Tommy Lee Wallace. I read it out loud to him and Tommy just looked at me and said, he didn't watch the movie. That's what he said to me. He, he just did what he had to do to get through it. But he obviously didn't watch the movie because the film is not about Michael Myers. But back to the positives of Halloween 3. And, and the next big positive is Tom Atkins. I, I've told Tom, one day I'm going to work with you. And I am going to get Tom in a movie. There is no doubt. And I, I've met Tom and I, I think he's fantastic. And he is John Carpenter's every guy. From The Fog, uh, Escape from New York... I love Tom Atkins, and he is also one of the most underrated and solid character actors to smolder on screen. In a bizarro Jaws, like think about this, in a bizarro Jaws, he would have made a great Chief Brody, wouldn't he? Atkins is able to project genuine world weariness, and when he says, I need a drink, you fucking believe him. Atkins played Dr. Chalice as a broken man trapped in suburban desperation. And then we'll go on to Stacey Nelkin, his, his sidekick in this. She has just enough Scooby-Doo-like wonder as the distraught daughter and enough grown woman to not be totally skeeved out by her and Atkins' hookup. It, it, it actually, we, we accept it. But the big thing is, and I use this all the time when I write as background music, is, is Carpenter and, and Alan Howarth's score. There's real menace in this score and in the film's opening titles. Despite being 80s computer graphic laden, it sets the tone for the entire film. Howard's synth score subtly works its way into the fabric of the film in ways far superior to Carpenter's original Halloween theme, if you can believe that. You may not, but that's my opinion. And of course we have the Silver Shamrock jingle. It's beloved by many, annoying to some, the ditty is set to London Bridge and works in Wallace's soothing Kentucky voice, glazing it into trance, into a trance-like piece. I love it. My cell phone ringtone is the Silver Shamrock jingle. So every time I watch the movie and I hear it, I actually think my phone is going off. And another thing that works for Halloween 3, why Halloween 3 works so well, and it's just simply the way the story unfolds. I mean, it pulls you in. And no doubt it pulled in its audience in 1982 as, as they kept waiting and waiting for Michael Myers to show. But I'm telling you, people gave the movie a chance. It wasn't until about, like I said, 15, 20 minutes in in that theater when people started grumbling. But they were intrigued enough to be like, you know, what the hell is this? However, the mystery does peel like an onion. And we do want to know what the hell is going on inside that silver shamrock factory. And the overall story is a great tip of the hat to what Tommy called the pod movie with them trying to transform us. This movie has great atmosphere and is genuinely creepy and fun with Jamie Lee Curtis providing the voice of the curfew lady and phone operator in the film. So there you go. Jamie Lee did come back somewhere along the line. So to be fair, uh, let's look at what doesn't work about Halloween 3. And the big thing for me were the androids. I mean, we know Cochran makes novelties and has an affinity for robotics, but, but how did he do it? How do they drive? And, and are they all factory workers? And, and if so, why does he need the town of Santa Mira? I mean, Cochran praises his creations for their obedience, but wouldn't the residents be more loyal to Cochran if he just simply employed them? Why the curfews and totalitarian control of the town? I mean, it's clear Cochran has been around the block and knows human nature. 
He would eventually know that there would be rebels. I mean, aside from that foul-mouthed wino that gets his head ripped off. His 24-hour blanket surveillance with cameras all over the town add nothing to the story and and seemed like it would be one more thing he would have to deal with. And and he's already so busy with his diabolical plot. However, in light of a post-9-11 world... I mean, Wallace was was kind of prescient, to say the least, on that one. I mean, it, it does offer a, a kind of hint of things to come, I guess, in, in, in an Orwell kind of way. And, and let's look at Cochran. I mean, what is he exactly? I mean, how old is he? I mean, he alludes to the fact that he, he might be thousands of years old. What was his plan? And what was he planning for the day after Halloween? I mean, imagine the aftermath, the public outcry, the lawsuits, and and the manhunt for Cochrane as undoubtedly the mass deaths would be connected with his masks. All we get is, the world is going to change tonight. And that explanation matches how he managed to smuggle a giant block from Stonehenge across the world and into his little factory. We had a time getting it here. You wouldn't believe how he did it, he told Chalice in that scene. And, And you know what? No. We probably wouldn't. I mean, are are people going to change because the the demo we get of one of the masks bizarrely kills, but hardly transforms anyone like the aliens in Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Did, Did Cochran expect Chalice to escape? Why does he let Atkins do what he does at the end with the the little shamrock labels? And where are all his robot henchmen to stop it? Cochran succumbs to, like I said, what Roger Ebert called the curse of the talking villain, when, it, when instead of doing away with Chalice, he reveals his lab and, and all the behind-the-scenes specs that give Chalice time to think of, of a way to disrupt it. I mean, come to think of it, why not just stick Chalice in the same viewing room with, with Buddy and his family instead of the easy escape room he inevitably escapes from? And, and the masks. Just why are these masks so popular? What makes them so appealing to children in a sea of masks at that time dedicated to Star Wars and far more other appealing pop icons? I mean, why just three styles or, or choices? And, and if they are such a hot ticket item, why is the Silver Shamrock Factory so run down with such a small staff? It's clear the masks are a national phenomenon, but, but we never really know exactly why. And why kill Buddy and his family? I mean, Cochran knows the masks work, why waste time or, or risk exposure with a demonstration, I put in quotes, to, to Dr. Chalice? Seems like a total waste of time to me. And then you've got the ending. I mean, why is Ellie Grimbridge transformed? Why not just kill her and Chalice and, and be done with it? What purpose is she going to serve? All of this time to set up his dastardly plan and he would risk these two to mess it up? When exactly was she transformed because she allows Chalice to, to mess up the whole place and wreck the lab room? I mean, she's clearly, she was a robot then. She's not talking. She's staring funny. Why didn't she stop him as, as Cochran's other mechanized employees tried? And, and why didn't she blow up when, when everybody else was short-circuiting when he was dropping all those things and, and the stone, obviously, its power was creating a short-circuit with all the robots? Why didn't Ellie short-circuit? I mean, and then you go to the final assault on Chalice in his car. It, it almost seems tacked on at the end. And, and why does Ellie decide to attack him then? Why didn't she stop him from destroying everything in the factory? And then why does Chalice go back to sit in the wrecked car? I, I don't get that. Why not just, if you're, gonna, if you're exhausted, plop down in the grass? The attacking severed arm also, folks, just for a matter of physics here, 
has no leverage and would not pose the problem it does in that scene. What should have been a tragic, sad moment for Chalice and, and the loss of his lover becomes unintentionally funny and really over cheesy and for some dragged out into a just fucking end it moment. And what happened to the real Ellie? The film does make its full transformation into a B-movie in its final moments and in a way makes all of what we just listed all right. I mean, you suspend your disbelief. I mean, at the end, it kind of goes over the top and, and it's a good ride. The film at least has the guts to end on an ambiguous dark note, bucking the growing 80s trend of, of happy or tied up endings to satisfy the audience so they, they don't have to think after the opening credits roll up. And so, uh, so I, I will say this, I, I have to give credit to the filmmakers of part three for going back to the original concept and making something completely different, despite the fact that this entry is largely ignored by Halloween and horror fan film fans alike. And, and now we have a lot of Johnny come lately's. Oh, I love Halloween three. Halloween three is awesome. When many of these people, and I've heard them, okay, I've heard them, they've changed their tune because originally they were bad mouthing this movie and tearing it apart. But over the years, the film has become rehabilitated and people have jumped on the bandwagon. And you know what? That's a lot like the, the uh, original The Shining. The original Shining, again, was not well received. It was tepid to mediocre response. But now it's one of the top 25 most terrifying films of all time. I call bullshit on a lot of these people that claim to have loved it when 30 years ago, they really could have given or taken it. So the, the, the sum up really is this, and that is cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, won as, as the film returned to small profit, and Michael Myers was returned to quiet the angry masses in Halloween 4, which again was basically a dull retread that lulled everyone back into complacency and acceptance, much kind of like the pod movie that Halloween 3 emulates. So everybody fell asleep and woke up loving the Halloween series again, with Halloween 4, and Halloween 3 was just simply a bad dream. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Cinema. For Halloween, treat yourselves. Find a copy of Halloween 3, or let's say this, find a copy of Season of the Witch, and enjoy. Oh, and happy Halloween. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison. <laughs>